The subject for the evening talk is spaciousness and inquiry. <coughs> One of the uh, criticisms which is um, made of people who are uh, referred to as Hinayanist Buddhists um, and I've never yet in all the years met somebody who's referred to themselves as that <laughs> and I've come to the conclusion in fact that there probably isn't such a person on the planet but anyway people who are referred to as Hinayanist Buddhists um, they're often criticised as spending far too much time looking at suffering. And this criticism which is, which is made is perhaps an unfair one to a person who is making inquiry into life. It, but it's something which perhaps should be attributed, this criticism, to someone who is um, obsessively identified with suffering, who engages in various forms of masochistic tendencies, whether they would call themselves Hinayanist Buddhists, I'm <laughs> not sure. Um, but in looking at practice and looking at observation, and working with it, we find ourselves face to face with a variety of forms of experience. And to some degree, life itself can be described as a field of experience. We might say life is a field or fields of experiences. And these fall into the areas of being pleasant, of being painful, of being uh, neutral. And within these fields of experience we have a relationship to them and this relationship is the uh, largely a governing factor in the way that we live and conduct our life now within this activity of our, of our looking at life we see that there is a basic principle, let us say, which is working, in which our mind moves between one and the other as a form of experience. And there's the middle area of the neutral area, and the pleasant and the painful. And our mind, in its switching back and forth, that this becomes a major measure of our life. So when you and I are looking at life and our experience of life, what we're looking at, at, what's pleasant and what's painful and what's somewhere between these two. Out of this looking at this, we begin to look more carefully and closely and as we do, particularly in a retreat, we begin to notice perhaps far more than we would normally owing to the mindfulness and uh, uh, focus the sheer frequency in which our mind moves between one and the other forms of experience. And that in the 
and that in the course of a particular day we in fact have a tremendous variety. This variety we experience, we draw conclusions on and to some extent affects our action. Let's just take an example t today. In one of the uh, group meetings today, in one of the, the discussion groups today, someone brought up the fact of what it means to be out taking a walk. And for one person that could be seen and a person can feel, feel that as something which is an escape, an escape from dealing with the immediacy of the reality. For another person, that's the completely appropriate and skillful thing to do. And so in, a, in the relationship to any kind of endeavour, the views and opinions and the appropriateness of it tend to vary considerably from one to another. And so even in the course of our experience, one day we can be doing something and that's useful and skillful, and the next day we can be doing exactly the same thing but it isn't so appropriate, it isn't so useful or skillful. And so we frequently find in our life something which was right for yesterday isn't right for today. Experience is much the same, but the appropriateness of it isn't. And this can show itself in countless forms, and one of those ways that this can show itself is in this whole field of spirituality, in the whole field of, sustain, of sustained meditation. And there needs to be brought within us, and within our practice and focus in life, in the meditation, a flexibility of mind, so that in our practice we don't find ourselves getting caught up or so identified with something in a particular way that it hinders our flexibility. In the course of this looking and, in and inquiry, one also sees that within the context of that, an aspect of that, and for sometimes it's a major aspect of that, is the field of suffering. And to, for you and I to live in any way which um, denies or avoids that, is obviously to miss seeing one of the realities, one of the rather harsh realities about life. In this connecting with the field of suffering, both as a physical and as a mental experience, our connection with it means it's the seeing into and the working with. And one of the analogies which I use for it, it's like having or experiencing a fire. Meaning that if you and I turn our back on it, it will just continue. It might continue in our consciousness or, or it might continue at some other level inside of us. And so much of our practice and focus in life is going to where the place actually is. And one of the things which happens, and happens rather frequently, unfortunately, in meditation and people in the alternative movement, 
and all the idealism which can be born in that is that at times there is a refusal physically or psychologically to take responsibility for what one is experiencing. And I remember both uh, but many a time in uh, um, uh, India whereby people would go to do some practice. You know, practice to save all sentient beings, practice to come to liberation, whatever the motive may be. And in the course of that time, would get sick. All the countless forms that you know, one can, reasons that one can get sick. And there would be a refusal to deal with this. A person would go on meditating, a person would go on having faith in what somebody told them or what they had read about being cured through this means. A person would um, just ignore and deny what the experience was. And sometimes in the, in the forms of idealism which, are, which uh, occur, it's, this is good, alternative medicine, Tibetan medicine, Thai medicine, homeopathic medicine, and it may well be. But with it goes that straight medicine, surgery, something else, that's bad. And as a, as a result of this, people, and this used to happen in India and it happens in the West, people are sometimes find themselves una unable to acknowledge the reality. And sometimes when the reality is rather severe, health-wise, physical-wise, sometimes it requires a, a reciprocation which unfortunately, not always, but unfortunately is sometimes also rather severe. To live with, in the face of suffering and to work, work with it sometimes re re requires that kind of looking and spaciousness which is able to respond as best that one can. And that only comes out of responsibility, meaning the ability to respond. It comes out of responsibility rather than denial. In, in, the, in the way of practice and, and, and working with these, with, with these areas and with some of the more we call, gro gross or self-evident forms of suffering in life, there needs to be, with that looking, a spaciousness to be able to respond to it. And there is much in the field of um, alternative medicine which is extraordinarily of, of value and one is freed from some of the um, alarming either side effects or suppressive effects of our Western medicine. But not all things, in terms of alternative medicine, is good for all situations. And therefore this looking, seeing what the reality is, responding and exploring and inquiring implies and expresses a spaciousness dealing with physical life's suffering. I remember it was not so long ago on 
retreat in California. There were five people on that retreat with, with cancer. You know, cancer is, strikes down so many people. It strikes you know, one in five people in the West. And these people, the uh, five people, one of the characteristics of them was the different ways that they had actually approached that illness. But all in their own way, real feature was the willingness to take responsibility and work with it. And sometimes it's those situations which in an extraordinary way bring out the best in people. And sometimes it takes us to be faced with suffering and, and difficulty or to see it in someone else who, is, who we are close to and we are, have a, an affinity for, to bring out something out of ourselves which is very pure and beautiful and, and caring. Someone is uh, fading out since the beginning of the sitting. <laughs> Keep the energy up, as I find it a little distracting. In the me meditation practice and in this dealing with the suffering which, which arises, taking it both at the physical level, we also see it, of course, as I've mentioned a number of times and in the morning talk here, with regard to the physical pain that we experience. All of that working with, as well as at the psychological level, this is rather important, meditatively speaking, is towards bringing us towards more refinement, more subtlety. And in the Pali language, which is something which we don't have in our English language, is a, is a word which has an expansiveness of meaning called dukkha. And dukkha means from the most intensive form of suffering which is, can be experienced to that which is, we would describe, say, as unsatisfactoriness. And there's that whole spectrum of experience. And the Buddha, in speaking of this area and looking into this area of life, says some of the most characteristic forms of suffering are not getting what we want, losing what we have, being separated from what or who we love. So some of the most strongest forms of human suffering falls into one of these three areas. Losing what we have, not getting what we want, being separated from what or who we love. In that form of personal suffering which we can experience, one of the characteristics when there is an intensity to it, as we well know, it tends to involve our whole being. It involves our thoughts and our memory and our images, our emotional life and our physical being. And there's a kind of burning and pain which can arise at that level. And the practice itself, as the Buddha has once stated, 
He said, I've been teaching this practice for many a year. Something which when I had uh, read this passage really had touched me deeply. He said, I've been teaching this for many a year. And people say to me, why do you teach this Dharma? Why do you teach this way? And he said, and I teach this way for one reason. And the reason is that in this world there is suffering and in this world there is a way through this and out of this suffering. And it's this that gives me the energy to teach. So there you ha have it, as it were, shall we say, in a, a, nutsh a nutshell, the motivation, the, the, the direction of dealing with difficulty, dealing with pain in that most intensive forms which we can experience, and coming to assimilate and understand all that, become more spacious in accommodating all that, so that our being itself can come to more subtlety. In this coming to more subtlety, more, more, more refinement of, of, our, of our being, one of the aspects which can work for us or work against us is the application, and there's been some uh, talk and discussion of this uh, over the days, some application of effort. And the effort which is required to sustain the meditation. At times, effort itself is a continual sustaining, being, being applied, one might say, throughout the whole course of the day, throughout the course of several days. As we become more aware of that application of effort, the effort itself is something which one applies when it's useful and appropriate in response to the state of the mind-body. So in one's meditations, in the course of our practice here, if it is not something that one pushes again and again and again with, but it's, it's part of the response to what's happening. And so there are certain obvious features, such as tiredness and low, low energy or boredom or daydreaming or spacing out or low energy or those are fairly typical conditions which arise and it may be if we are experiencing them either at the beginning or after several days does we need to ask ourselves do I need to apply more effort to this practice do I need to put more effort into it and if one knows from one's own inner listening that one needs to do that, then one applies it. And for that we need to be in touch again, of course, with the totality of the day. If the effort itself is one which is pushing too hard, we and this pushing too hard with, with regard to our effort, it may be such in our practice 
that we're actually denying spaciousness. And I'm thinking here a little bit, if I may say, to some typical characteristics with, with regard to, I dare say this, with regard to gender. I mean, there is... <laughs> this is where I get step on toes now. <laughs> Let's say, um, put it another way. In my typical conditioning as a, as a male... And anyone with that typical kind of conditioning, there can be the will and the force and the drive to get somewhere, partly through externalized pressure, partly through competitiveness, partly through the will and desire to prove oneself. This enters into the mainstream of one's thinking, and for some of us as male, it's a very common, typical way of thinking and looking at life. And so in the narrowness of our own mind, when we hear a message which reinforces that, we tend to adopt, very easily adopt that procedure. And in, ado- and in adopting that, we tend to get rather caught up in it. And that's when the, f- the actual effort itself has overstepped its application. And one may keep doing that, but it may not be bringing that full spiritual nourishment that is required, that is necessary, that one, which is the juice that one really learns and comes to love the practice for. Now sometimes, within hearts and minds of people, of women, uh, of men who have a much more spacious approach to life, who are not so goal, therefore not so time-orientated, different way of looking, you know, which is organic to, to that person. When the message comes of the use of forcing oneself Pushing against oneself, because that's what tends to take place. If the mind is not used to that, genuinely not used to it, it's, it's a foreign way of living and doing. The tendency that tends to take place is that there'll either be an, uh, a major reaction to it, one will, can definitely easily bruise one's psyche, or one comes to a place where one feels the practice is dry and arid. And it tends to bring very equally an equally strong form of reaction or closing off to the practice. And there's always a danger of this. And so sometimes I would say in the in, the, in these messages which come on and come to us about the usefulness of sustaining our, our effort and, and extending itself, it must be accompanied with listening inwardly. To get the feeling of, of listening to what one's, what one's being is saying. And sometimes there are the voices inside of us within our practice which are very supportive and helpful and, 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 and 
give us a sense of directing our practice, sustaining it totally and fully, yet not driving against ourselves. And it's not, not easy. You know, I just received a letter from a, a, a dear friend of mine, a woman friend of mine, who has been quite harmed, I feel, psychologically and, 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 and deeply through bringing about too much intensity. And her major regret, as she said several times through the course of this letter, was that in that time she didn't listen to herself. She didn't listen to what her real feelings were and she tended to listen to what the others and the other were saying. And this, instead of coming from, suf- from suffering to more refinement of being, if we are not listening totally and sensing what's important and valuable, we'll go from refinement of being to suffering. So, th- and I feel that this is one of the areas, as the Buddha has, has uh, frequently re- ref- referred to, is this, is this the willingness to apply where it feels appropriate and necessary to the practice, to what one hears, to any kind of pressures and so forth, to apply the practice of detachment. That sometimes in our relationship to the spiritual life and the meditative life and the forms of, uh, which can take pl- place, sometimes the detachment and the inner listening, listening and to the inner responses are far more important than the form, the method, the technique, the structure and what another is telling us to do. That's when sometimes the application of detachment really must come in. Otherwise, the the very process of what we are engaged in goes in reverse. And that can happen in any kind of um, intensity, in any of the traditions, east or west. So keeping this balance and keeping this focus with one which is attuning oneself it may be that at times it doesn't meet all of the external requirements, but it is meeting something within ourself. And one of the characteristics of, and features of meeting something within oneself and practicing it, that it gives an abundance of energy. It genuinely gives energy. So this willingness to hear from within and to remain true to oneself with all that can take place and all the deceptions that can take place in that means that we begin to sense in our practice the spacious factor 
regardless of a long day, regardless of seven, eight, nine sittings a day, regardless of the silence, regardless of all the countless disciplines that are imposed upon us, that there is inwardly, amidst all of it, that spaciousness. Because we've chosen to inquire to look what's right, what's appropriate, what's skillful at this time. In this finding and sustaining of that necessary and and valuable effort in our our practice, as I say, that begins to release and bring about more energy. And the the energy comes, because in our listening and developing of more calmness of being, we're not burning up our energy either in force either in trying to conform, but we're relaxing inwardly and energy and tensions, all of which can be created in the present through whatever means, begin to be released and flow much more freely within ourselves. So people's practice and their time, the fullness of the day begins to expand itself. So people find that those who do long-term practice, those who get into the rhythm of the practice, that sometimes in the night hours the energy is there, the sitting is there, there's a sense of alertness, and there's a, another whole quality in the night hours with regard to meditation practice. In the day when we're together, it's tremendously supportive, And in the night hours, when there's just hardly anybody here, or just one or two people, just to sit in the silence and the stillness of the night, those spiritual factors and and connectedness with, with life really begin to feel actual, really begin to, to belong to reality, and not something which is one is pursuing into the future. One begins to get that sense of what the spiritual really means. And the energy and the calmness and the sustaining of the practice maximize, bring out these fields of receptivity inside of us, with stillness and silence being primary. When we come to looking at the bare, more and more at the bare, bare actuality, the bare actuality of being aware of the phenomena, seeing that the refinement, the subtlety, the, 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 the tremendous, one might say, dance of the atoms, that the life coming and, and going in countless shapes and countless forms, the, the whole extent extensive field of sensations and all of that experiencing in its immediacy. Within all, all of that, some of the more consolidated forms of suffering begin to lose their grip to some degree and there's just, this is just what's taking place. Just as the text would say, this is just what is. 
And so from all the complicatedness of our life and all the involvement, it begins to reduce itself down to just what's here, just what's now. This is simply occurring. Within that, just what is simply occurring, what, what is just simply manifesting, within that, easily the mind, doesn't it? It says, but I want to do something more about this, or there ought to be more than this, or, well, I can't just sit here and just be aware of things coming and g- going. If I go on like this, what can I do with my life? You know, what, what, where am I going to go in my life, or whatever? So in coming to that, because it's an, as so often an unfamiliar field of experience, we don't know what to do with it. Because it's unknown, we actually don't know how to relate. So we're going from, or well, grows to subtle, going from the obvious to the less obvious. And in coming to that, it feels strange, weird, odd, one doesn't know what to do, and the mind needs to interpret and bring in the commentator and the judgment, etc., to somehow or other clearly define to ourselves that things are just coming and just going. (laughs) Within that relationship, and in that... in that... uh, shall we say, refinement of our awareness. At that time, that, those thoughts which are coming, they are also just, just a thought. And the thought arises and the thought passes, and another thought rises and another thought passes. And because there is a seeing of that as well, we are not so closely identifying with the content. If you can follow this, please. One is not so closely identifying with the content. Because to identify with the content in the thought is to produce an image about life and a view and opinion of it. And we've lived like that for so long and look at the result. So even though thoughts arise, when there is that detachment there and there is that pure observation there, the thoughts appear, and there's content about it, judgment about it, but we're not saying that's therefore the way that it is. And therefore, thoughts then, which seemed extraordinarily troublesome at some levels of our consciousness, become less troublesome and completely untroublesome whether they appear or whether they don't because we're not attaching to the content, because there is a detachment at that level. So the problem of, oh, there are so many thoughts, and these thoughts are this, and these thoughts are that, when we're coming to a deeper level, don't have any relevance, because that is no longer our reference point for seeing what the nature of things are. And when there is that, when there is that seeing in, in more, more clearly about the nature of things as it shows itself, 
then there comes that uh, looking and seeing of the, of the actuality of change, of impermanence, and the sheer frequency and diversity that it shows itself, and the dukkha, the unsatisfactoriness in connection with it. That unsatisfactoriness in connection with it can show itself because there's birth, there is death, because there is having, there is losing, because there is success, there is failure, because there is health, there is sickness, etc., etc. All the common forms which keep registering to us as change. In the levels which I'm speaking about, the mind may actually have no investment in what's actually happening. We're not concerned with health or sickness, success or failure, getting or not getting, having or losing. It's just coming, it's just going. And in that, that's all. That's the bare characteristic of the nature which shows itself to us. And that's important to bear in mind. It's only the nature which shows itself to us. In that, one, one, one might ask, one may in- inquire because of the spaciousness in that seeing, is that change unsatisfactory unto itself or is it simply my interpretation? Is it that basically change, the dance of the atoms, the coming and the going of phenomena, is that unsatisfactory for itself? Or is it because this is the way I read it? There is an inquiry there, isn't there? One may say, one may say at one, in one way, at one level, that in that seeing at, at, that, uh, that, at that time in which there's no apparent investment or, uh, or identification with, there's just clear, bare attention to the bare actuality, one may say at that time, well, unsatisfactoriness has got to be, even though I might experience a great deal of um, pleasantness and, and contentment and peace at being at this bare actuality level, but in its coming and, and therefore in its coming and going, anything which I say is unsatisfactory is purely an interpretation of it. But I wonder. I wonder. I wonder if it's that in that seeing there and in that seeing in that particular way that that factor of unsatisfactoriness is not so much because of the thing itself change, phenomena of change in life and all the levels that, it, that it's apparent, but what that seeing is hiding. What can that be hiding? Is it that somewhere in that which is true at so many, many levels is also mysteriously bringing about an ignorance as well? I look at the world and I see suffering. 
look at that suffering, I explore that suffering, I inquire into it, I'm willing to work with it. To some degree or other, there's a cutting through, there's a dissolving of it. There is less suffering, there's more focus, there is a, a settling in. I begin to listen more carefully to, to my intuitions and what my being is saying. I'm prepared to take risks, I'm prepared to use form and follow it through with much effort. I'm prepared to let go of form, I'm prepared to let go of, of the structure, I'm prepared to connect in, in, inwardly and see what that means through being true to myself. I follow, I follow, that, I follow that through, I begin to get the, the sense and the balance of practice, of meditation, of the deep inner work. It takes me to levels which I can see bare actuality and the bare phenomena. And I've explored that marvellous expanse of life. And in, in that, I'm looking and inquiring, what is the bare actuality? And I see aspects of it. I see the falseness of self and its structure in all of that. I see how I cling to permanence and continuity and all of that. Now look at that more and more carefully. Then I inquire, even in the most bare, with no ego investment whatsoever, even that, somewhere it's unsatisfactory because it hides. Even the bare actuality is a kind of illusion. Not mind created, not that kind of illusion, but what the original meaning of the word Mara is. Mara means to measure. And, and, and there's the Mara there, because one has taken something and there's a measurement there. There's a, def a, a defined factor there. And then those intuitions and that spaciousness take on a momentous proportion. Because there's the potential, let us put it like that, there's the potential to see through suffering, to see through impermanence, to see through the unsatisfactoriness somehow associated with it all, to see through it totally. And then everything is truly in its place. Deceptions have gone. There's no going back to the old way of seeing and believing. May all beings see into life. May all beings see into the nature of things. May all beings abide expansively.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.